heart-wrenching. That's the only way you could describe it. Hearing about the 18-month-old baby clinging to its mother who had drowned in the hurricane. How else do you describe that? What can you say about that? Sometimes we encounter things in life that are so devastating, so painful. There is very little left to say. What can you say? And we ask the question, why would God let these things happen? One of the criticisms that atheists and agnostics throw against the Word of God and the idea, the concept of God, is that if God is so good, God is so loving, how can these things happen? And as Christians, we face problems, we face trials, we face struggles. And when we go through those things, we ask ourselves, how can this be? What shall I do? And we don't know what to do with it sometimes. Or at least it's a struggle to know what to do. And so when we have a week like we have had this week, and there are some sitting in this room or some in this building who have had their own trials, their own struggles this week. Sometimes uh, we have had struggles at different times in our lives. And when we endure those things, we think, what am I to do? And so James addresses that. James chapter 1. James says, consider it pure joy when you encounter trials of various kinds. James, what in the world are you talking about? Consider it pure joy? I want us this morning to think about what James has in mind. I want us to think about where exactly is the source of our struggle and what we as Christians can do today. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, please be turning to James chapter 1, and we want to think about James' word to us this morning. There are all sorts of pain and struggles and strife in this life, and some of them are devastating. Some of them, after we get through them, we think that was really no big deal, but at the moment, it envelops us. We don't know what to do. Notice what he says, James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in when we begin looking at James's words, we think that he is absurd, maybe. Consider it joy? Consider it all joy? When I encounter various trials? If you are the grandmother of that baby, if you are the person that finds that baby clinging to its mother, are you going to look at that situation and say, oh, this is so joyous? James doesn't say, consider that joy. Notice what he says. Consider it joy when you encounter trials, 
knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let that endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The joy is not from the trial. Sometimes we read this and sometimes we hear this. We think, oh, James is saying that we ought to be jumping up and down when we have trials in our life because, oh, look at me, I get to have this trial. What he's saying is have joy in the outcome. And the outcome is, is that you become complete. You become perfect. Because you've made it through the trial. And the trial has made you stronger. Because it has produced this. I know you're not amazed to hear this. But I, I kind of enjoy bodybuilding a little bit. Can't you tell? And when I was a kid growing up, my dad was really into bodybuilding. And if you saw me and my dad, you would snicker, snicker at that too. He takes bodybuilding in a different direction. He does it the Pepsi-Cola way. But, but we were into that when I was a kid. And, and one thing you learn is these guys that go out and they bodybuild all the time and they spend hours doing that. They, you know, they do things on purpose to tear down their bodies. And the whole theory behind it is that as you do those exercises, you do those curls, you, you lift those barbells or those dumbbells, and you do it in reps or sets. You know, you do one set and it tears down your muscle. It kind of wakes your muscle up. And you do another one and it rips it apart even more. And then you do that third set. And you're literally tearing the tissue of your muscle so that your body will build it back a little bit stronger. And that's what bodybuilders do. And that's what trials do to us. As we get through them, they make us a little bit stronger. Now, as we look at this text, James is telling us, consider pure joy because that is what these things produce. They produce endurance. Because when you go through those trials and you learn to rely on God and be faithful to God, you have endurance. And it's that endurance that results in perfection and completion. Not perfection in the sense that you never make a mistake. Not perfection in the sense uh, that uh, you have great thinking and you're right 100% of the time. But it's the idea of complete and whole, these two words. They're very similar in the Greek, the word perfect and the word complete here. They complement each other. But the idea of perfect means that you have everything that you need, and the idea of wholeness is that you have them in correct quantities. And the idea is the wholeness of faith, that you're mature and that you have everything you need to be to be a godly person is the concept here because you've made it through. Oftentimes we look at this and we think, well, why does God make these things happen? Notice that the text doesn't say anything about God doing anything here. It's not God who brings the trials necessarily. We'll see that in just a second. But as we encounter those things and we go through them and we hold on to them, God makes us stronger. That process makes us stronger. Verse 5 
James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will be, receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded, a double-minded man and unstable in all his ways. And, and so James says what you need to do when you encounter these trials is ask God for wisdom. Now notice he doesn't say ask God for understanding. He doesn't say, God, let me understand what I'm going through. He, it's literally ask God for Sophia, for wisdom. Maybe wisdom to know what I ought to do. Maybe ask God for wisdom to help me know which course of action I ought to take, what I ought to be thinking. And it's interesting that in this context, he doesn't just throw it out there, ask God for wisdom. But it really gets into it and says, you need to ask God, and when you ask God, make sure that you ask God for this wisdom in faith. And he spends a couple of verses here talking about if you ask God and you don't have that faith, what's your life? Don't ask God to give you anything if you're like this person. He really wants us to seek God for wisdom in what we ought to do, how we ought to respond to the trial, how we ought to act in the midst of this trial. And he says, God gives generously. So don't think that God's not going to give it to you. God's going to help you know what you ought to do. God's going to give you that wisdom of what you ought to be thinking and doing. He says, if you ask and you don't really ask in faith that he's going to help you have that wisdom, it's kind of like that person that's out on the sea just kind of being tossed back and forth in the waves. Or something that really would have resonated for people living in the Roman Empire is that idea of the double-headed person. Because the Romans, Rome was built on two brothers Double-headed. The idea of being double-headed or double-minded here is literally in the Greek text having two heads. Can you imagine being a conjoined twin? And how do you resolve anything in that circumstance? One of you wants to go over here, one of you wants to go over here. And that's literally what James is, is describing. Uh, part of you wants to go over here. No, no, I don't want to do that. I want to go over here. And he says it's kind of like being a double-minded person. Nothing gets done because you're going two different directions constantly. So when you ask for that wisdom, truly have faith that God is going to provide that to you. And you'll have it. And then James seems to go in a different direction, but I don't think so, verse 9. As he talks about the fact that in our lives we encounter people of different standings, so to speak. Notice what he says, verse 9. But the brother of humble circumstance is to glory in his high position. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. Because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises as with a scorching wind and weathers the grass and the flowers fall off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive a crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who 
love him. To those who love him. This is a difficult passage. Because on the one hand, we understand the idea of a poor person who is faithful to God, glorying uh, maybe in his state, uh, because his glory is in the fact that he's faithful to God. And we get that. That's almost easier for us to understand. But then we have this idea of the rich man, uh, because quite frankly, a lot of us want to be a rich man. And compared to the rest of the world, most of us are. And he says, but the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. This word humiliation is hard to grasp and to get into our hands. There are some commentators who say this refers to the process of being humiliated. Or going through that process of losing everything. Lau and Nita in their lexicon say that this refers to having a lowly disposition, or that is not putting on airs. So think about rich people that you've encountered. There are rich people that I've encountered that they let you know that they're rich and their noses are kind of up in the air a little bit. But then I've encountered mean ones. And some of you have heard the story of the millionaire who came in and just swept the floor because the floor needed to be swept. That's humility. And so the idea is, is that this is a person who can glory in the fact that he has wealth, but he doesn't put on airs. He doesn't act presumptuously. And that maybe James is saying you can glory in that, boast in that. But be careful with that idea. Have you known the person who's always boasted how humble they are? I am probably the most humble person you've ever met. There's a passage in Deuteronomy that's kind of like that, where it talks about Moses being the, the most humble person ever. Moses didn't you write Deuteronomy? Probably Joshua wrote that part. But it's kind of interesting. The most humble person ever to live. A little bit of arrogance to say that, I suppose, right? But the idea is that you glory in the fact uh, that God has blessed you with things, but you don't have to impress everybody with that. You're a down-to-earth person. But there's also maybe a competing idea here of, of maybe it's going through that process of, of losing everything. You see, as... James goes on to describe the wealth of this world and the wealthy person. There are some people that pursue wealth and they put all their trust in their wealth and that wealth sometimes goes away. And it's gone. And so James says, look, the sun rises with a scorching wind and, and weathers away. And those things go away. So too, verse 11, the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive a crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. What do you love? Do you love God? Or do you love your wealth? I persevere in a trial because I love God. And maybe God has blessed me with great wealth, but I'm going to persevere even if it means that my wealth goes away. We need to come back to the beginning of this passage. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. James says various trials. We are all going to have trials. Some of our trials are going to be pretty small. Not that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things. 
Some of our trials may be devastating to us. The family of that little baby clinging to its mother. Various trials. Some trials are easier to get through than others. There are people walking around in this world who have faced devastating things in their lives. And all they have known has been pain. And we encounter those folks. I pray that no one in this room is in that category. But there are some people that that seems to be all they've known has been trial and pain and suffering. And we wonder, how did, why does this happen? Why does God do this to folks? Is it God that does that? Look at verse 14, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted, is carried away, and enticed by his own lusts. And in lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it gives birth, it brings forth death. And we look at this and we say, wait a minute, this is talking about temptation. But remember, the Greek word for temptation and the Greek word for trial is the same word. Different uses of the same word. To me, it's like having a coin. One side of the coin, the temptation that Satan gives us is the things that look pleasurable. The other side of that coin are things that Satan gives us that are painful. And Satan is using one side of that coin or the other to lead us away from God. Now keep your finger here in Job because I want us to entertain the question of where is the source of our trials. Go over to the book of Job near the Old Testament. Right before the book of Psalms, Job. Yeah, I'm sure everyone here is familiar with the story of Job, but we know that Job was a wealthy man. Look at verse 6. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, where do you come from? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one on earth like him, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Now that's not Job describing himself. That's God and his perception of Job. Verse 9, then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but put forth your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Now notice verse 12 very carefully. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Now, if you know the story of Job, this happens a second time. But do you notice what happens? Satan goes to Job or goes to God, and he says, the only reason this man's faithful to you is because you gave him all these things. 
God limits Satan. But he allows Satan to do things to Job. Satan is the one who's trying to prove whether or not Job is faithful to God and the reason he's faithful to God. Satan is the one who brings trial into Job's life. But God allows it. But God limits it. When we face things like hurricanes and death and disease and loss of loved ones, that's not God. That's Satan. And Satan is doing it because he's trying to prove to God that you're not going to be faithful to God. And he's trying to dissuade others from being faithful to God. And so when we come back to James chapter 1, and James says, consider it pure joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that your endurance produces perfection and completion. That's not God. That's Satan. Satan is doing everything he can to pull you away from God. And when God doesn't let that happen, and when you remain faithful to God, or God limits what Satan's able to do, and you remain faithful to God, and you look back on that, you become stronger, more complete, more faithful to God. Notice how James ends up the section. Verse 16, he says, Do not be deceived, my brethren, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creation or of his creatures. James says, I want you to look at the stars in the heavens. The language here that James uses was common among the Greeks to talk about their observation of the heavens. The shifting shadows are the shadows of the different uh, celestial bodies, stars, planets that moved, and the light that they threw down on the earth. And you might come to different conclusions based on what those lights do in your everyday life. Because you see those shadows moving about on the earth and that sort of thing. And James says, God's not like that. God doesn't change depending on what angle of light it casts upon the earth that particular day that particular month, that particular year. His love for you is constant. As Christians, as a church today, we need to show God's light of love when people are suffering, when people are going through trials. Maybe right now your life is free of trial and free of temptation, and you are going strong. And that is awesome, and we ought to rejoice at those times in our lives. But sometimes it's while we're in that midst that we have a responsibility to go to someone who is suffering or be there for someone who is suffering, for, to be in the presence of someone who is going through trial and simply loving them and encouraging them. And we need to be careful when we do so because sometimes we say the wrong thing. Sometimes we just want to throw something out there. 
And so we have to have in the back of our minds what Paul says in Colossians chapter 4 when he says, let your grace always be seasoned as it were with salt so that you will know the right thing to say. In that context, specifically to those outside the church. But what would you say to the grandparent who comes and they say, here's my 18-month-old grandchild found clinging to its mother in the flesh? God's got a plan for everything. God's got a purpose for everything. God needed that mother more than the child did. What? No. Somebody did evil and harm to that child. And it's okay to be feeling that pain. But God can't get you through this. What do you say to someone who has a disease or facing a terrible physical condition? There's a purpose for that. No. We just show them God's love. You think about Mike going down to Conroy this week and encountering those folks who have endured so much and having to give them bad news. Your insurance doesn't cover this. That's a hardship. That's an emotional beating. As we think about being the Church of Christ in Denver, I hope that we will think diligently and strategically, what can we do to show God's love to people that are hurt. What can we do to help them ask God for wisdom in that time to get them through so that they will be able to come out stronger on the other side? Maybe you're here this morning and you have faced trials. Maybe you are facing trials now. Maybe there are needs in your life that nobody knows about that you want the prayers of the church. I hope that you'll come. Whatever you need, once you come, as together we stand and sing.